All right, guys, welcome to our Friday GPP strategy show. This is being pre-recorded earlier in the week. Uh, as you are watching this, I am in Las Vegas right now, but I wanted to get settled into the rhythm here with our DFS content schedule. This was my favorite show to do last year, bringing in all the sharpest uh, GPP players and DFS minds and kind of going more macro, not, not talking about hashtag play the best plays, but really how we can become better tournament players and and so none other than Mike Leone to join me to kick things off. My Tilt Space brother here. Mike, how are we doing? I'm doing well. Do you know where I am if you're listening to this show? Where I'm, would Mike be on a Friday? I just assume in Buffalo. I'm in Buffalo. Okay. Yeah, it's not, not as exciting as Las Vegas. It was a letdown. Uh, yeah, I was telling you, Mike, I, I'm going to be trying to get up to Buffalo for uh, for a game this year. I, I was honing in. I've, I've been emailing with some of my Buffalo buddies. Might try to make it up for the Monday night football game against the Patriots in Dude, that, December. That would be awesome. I really hope you can make it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll keep you posted on that, but yes, uh, week one, I think is always a, an interesting week for GPPs. I know normally I am out in Vegas doing my FFPC weekend. Uh, I'll be honest. I, I've, I've half-assed week one in previous years. You know, you throw it out and you say, hey, no one knows what we're doing. We're all just all tossed in a lineup and then we'll get into the rhythm of the season. But Mike, do you think in general there are kind of trends or things that we can exploit in week one in, in ways that we might not have that opportunity later in the season? Yeah, I mean, there's just an opportunity for guys week one to be completely mispriced that we don't know about like there's obviously some situations we know about but i'm looking at like i think people play kyle pitts for example at 4400 on DraftKings. Yeah. but just use micro example like th there's a chance that he's 2k underpriced and i don't mean like week 10 he's 6400 i mean like we're gonna say week one he should have been 6400 you know, there, there's plays like that out there that if you're willing to play it before you see it you can really take advantage of as we get further on into the season, there's kind of less of those like play it before you see it plays, you know, there's kind of, you almost end up getting a little bit more rigid in terms of what you're doing to get unique, to get leverage on the field because you have uh, less, I don't want to say less imagination, but there's just less there to work with in terms of uncertainty, the more uncertainty, the better for a GPP player in theory. And, we have the most uncertainty at the beginning of the year when stats, you know, we don't have stats on guys, players haven't stabilized. I think, you know, Bender had kind of a tweet on this where he said, you know, weeks one through four are some of the most profitable weeks in DFS for GPP players. So I, I'm, I'm pretty excited. There's just a lot of things we don't know. And it's a lot easier to, you know, like, I think Cleveland's going to throw a lot more this year. Yeah. I, I can play that week one. If I wait to see them throw a lot more, they're going to be chalky the next few weeks. I can play it week one. So I'm excited for it. Yeah. And I think the tricky thing is also just knowing what the field is going to do, because even though we have a lot of lead up, we've known these salaries for a long time. I don't think everyone's just necessarily completely settled on what they want to do. Like a good example here, I'm looking at the points per dollar plays here within the, uh, the run the Sims optimizer and what I'm going to use here as a hand build screener, just for all the information I like to look at Tyler Croft. This is a fairly new thing. The team trading Chris Herndon, Tyler Croft being the only tight end on the roster of any relevance. Uh, sorry, Ryan Griffin fans. And you know, here at 2,500, uh, as our friend Adam would say, the stone minimum, 
uh, he is going to be a guy I think that's going to be attractive to a lot of people in cash games. And then on top of that, with all of the value elsewhere, especially at wide receiver, you could also see the field paying up for George Kittle and Travis Kelsey. You mentioned Kyle Pitts. He's definitely popping as both a points per dollar and a guy who could have an incredibly nice ceiling. How, how do you think about this as far as I do? Do you agree that this is maybe one of the hardest weeks to figure out what the field is going to do? It is a little bit. And also, I mean, just whenever we don't have bye weeks, you know, we've got as large of a main slate as, you know, we basically can have with 13 games in the main slate. We only got one Monday night game this year. That always makes it a little bit trickier. I do think what that lets you freeze you up to do, though, is it makes it a little bit easier to mix in some of like, quote unquote, best plays. You can feel a little bit easier about doing that without the field exposure getting out of control because the field is going to be spread out kind of over a lot of different guys. You can kind of mix that with some of the things I was saying where like, it's also easy to see where guys are mispriced and like really take a leap of faith with those guys. So I feel like it's like a really nice mixture of being able to play. This guy's a really high ceiling on a different week. His ownership might be even higher than it is this week, but because there's so many options out there for the field, it's muted just enough where, I feel comfortable playing it and I can get different elsewhere. Just to pull back a little bit more from a contest selection and, you know, your, your volume and bankroll perspective, is this a week that you're maybe wanting to go a little heavier than you would on a normal week and push those edges? Are you trying to be more cautious? What is going to be your, your general approach? I know for our tilt space, we were just setting our budget, figuring out what we wanted to play. And I know me naturally when we were looking, I was like, Oh, maybe we ease into the season a little bit, or, or do you think that's wrong? And we should be pushing these edges. I kind of think we should be pushing the edges. You know, yeah. we're only going to get week one once. You know, weeks five through 15 are all going to be somewhat similar. We only get week one once. I think the natural inclination is to play a little bit less because there's more uncertainty. And when we're uncertainty, we, we do want to pull back, but we should realize that uncertainty is our friend when it comes. If you're, if you're a GPP player, you want that uncertainty. And, uh, I, I lean towards pushing it a little bit more. I generally end up playing like a similar amount each slate just because I don't, I don't know. It's just kind of how my brain operates. But if I were to err on one side or the other, I'd play a little bit more this slate and I might play a little bit less on another slate during the year where I'm just like, I don't see where the edges are. You know, I can't figure out this slate. I'm not sure how plus EV I am. Whereas I'm pretty confident the tournament lineups are going to make week one or plus EV. Obviously there's a lot of variance involved. And the odds of me realizing my true EV in a single week at DFS aren't very high, but you know, over time you want to get your money in when it's good. And I think it's better week one than it is most other weeks. Right. And it makes sense if you think about it conceptually, generally, as we go along, the chalk in the field is going to get smarter. The chalk exists for a reason. We have lots of reasons, whether that's sample size or, you know, our projections or basically our, our error bands get smaller and smaller as we get the more information, whereas we're going to have similar concentration of you know, ownership here around plays because that's just naturally what happens, whether because of content or, you know, general projections driving us there, but there's going to be the most variance in those projections. So if anything, this sets up as a week to be more contrarian than you normally would, just because we don't have the baseline assumptions that inform good chalk as much as we'll have later in the season. Yeah. 
that's that's a hundred percent correct. And there's already situations I can see week one where you know projections like we have our projections established wrong. We put a ton of time into them, and I think they're very good. But there are some situations where the projections are only as good as, as, you know, the input that you give it. And there are situations where it's difficult week one. You know, you look at the saints, they're without Michael Thomas, they're without Adam Troutman, they're without some guys. Um, there, there's a lot of stuff going on there. You look at the Jaguars, you know, are they going to play faster this year with urban Meyer? A lot of people are going to play faster and they've got three wide receivers in a cake matchup against Houston that you could play. And one of them is going to be chalky, probably Marvin Jones, just because, He's the cheapest of the three, but you know, what if instead of balancing out the target shares of Marvin Jones, LaVisca Chanel, and DJ Chark, what if you think Visca is a 25% target share guy? He's actually the play then um, in a tournament. I had to throw that in there, a pro Visca sentiment on this show for you, so I don't always get uh, to be the no fun guy. But there are, you know, and at running back for Jacksonville too, like, do you think Carlos Hyde is going to split with James Robinson or do you think it's going to be heavy James Robinson? There are so many situations like that week one and it has a massive impact. You know, if we, if we project 80% James Robinson at running back, he's one of the best values. If we project 60, 40, he's not on your sheet. Like, like that's a huge, and the magnitude of the impact that distinction makes is really meaningful. And we get a lot of spots like that where we're just not totally sure week one. And it makes sense to talk through those different spots. Yeah. I do think the Jags are really an interesting one to look at. And as you were kind of saying that, uh, I also thinking through like a lot of these sentiments that have formed in the preseason and we've seen those reflected in say best ball ADP, you know, Marvin Jones is a good one. He had that really nice catch with Lawrence, you know, lots of positivity coming out of Jags camp about Marvin Jones. Now all of a sudden he's 3,600 because this pricing came out a long time ago and you have all that steam and positive buzz. You And on the flip side, a lot of people down on DJ Chark for some reason, they can't get out of their heads. The urban, Meyer quote about him playing soft. He's had the injury and it is interesting thinking how some of those sentiments will carry over into week one ownership and how we can take advantage of those. You know, like you said, I think LaVisca is probably the sweet spot here. You know, if everyone's paying Marvin Jones at 3,600, he's up here at 5,000, but I mean, Chark, uh, could be a, a great option here as well mm -hmm. at 5,800 as the most expensive of the guy, the one everyone is completely down on. And then that goes back to something you and I talked about on the Establish the Edge podcast earlier this week, where, you know, we're just getting overconfident in specific things. And then how can we benefit the most? So you're actually getting leverage on DJ Chark. Not only are you maybe getting the better play, but if the field is all rostering Marvin Jones or LaVisca Chenault, you could really benefit in a big way. Yeah. And I mean, we're recording this on Monday. I don't think anyone's going to play Chark, you know, no. to your point. And it's a, it's a pretty big ceiling at 5,800 if that breaks right. And you can look up too. I saw, you know, on your screen there, the Philly guys, Devonta Smith, Jalen Rager. How much does Philly rotate the receivers? How do these guys play? Because they're in a game in Atlanta in a dome, you know, where like someone's probably going to pop there, you know, depending on how spread out you think it is there. So there are a few different spots like that. So, um, and yeah, the Eagles are another good one. They have had, and I would say in this case, Rager is kind of the, uh, the DJ Chark and he's the one that's had, you know, more of a rough 
preseason. You know, he has had a couple of the highlight catches that people got excited about, but there's been enough reports. Uh, and based on just where Devonta Smith was being drafted all offseason, I mean, he's being drafted higher than where CeeDee Lamb was being drafted last year, which just points to me that there's generally a positive sentiment here. The, the crowd wants to bet against Jalen Rager. They want to bet on Devonta Smith. Now you're getting a nice price tag. I assume people are going to like this matchup versus Atlanta. Um, this seems like another nice spot to go down to Rager. Not only are you going to save money, but we know he has a boom bust profile. He's going to have uh, probably a decent share of air yards. And if he gets loose at, at low ownership, you're, you're getting a nice, a lot of nice leverage. If Devonta Smith becomes a popular play here. Yeah. These receiver groupings where we expect the team to have success, but we're not sure how to divvy them up. Definitely one of the spots I'm seeing the Bengals guys here. I, I wonder I think like there, you know, Jamar Chase is the guy who's had the everyone's talking about his drops and how he took a year off from football. I think, you know, I think everyone's going to play T Higgins at 4,700 Jamar Chase. You know, it's the same play almost at 4,800 with a little bit more uncertainty there. So there's a lot of those types of spots. And then even just general roster construction week one, I'm curious what people do at quarterback because last year we were really on a kick correctly so we adjusted early in the year you got to pay up a quarterback for the ceiling you know just kind of the way it worked out it was those guys were separating and week one we've got josh allen on the slate we've got kyler murray we've got patrick mahomes but we've also got some really cheap quarterbacks like mac jones is like 4400 um not saying to play him but we've you know we've got some Zach Wilson and Sam Darnold are 5K going up against each other's, you know, defenses that, you know, likely aren't that good in, in an okay total game. You've got Burrow under 6K, um, Hurts in the low 6K. So I feel like there's a lot more variability. At least early in the week, it feels like there's more variability at what you could do at quarterback than I think there was a lot of weeks last year. Yeah, and one theme I'm noticing as I continue to kind of tab through the positions, look at the best points per dollar plays, is we are seeing lots of rookies and lots of players who have either changed teams or kind of emerged out of nowhere. You know, we were looking at the wide receivers, uh, Marquez Callaway also popping, a guy who's been a huge riser over the past month as far as how people feel about his role. But going back to the rookies, uh, you know, I feel like there's two kind of conflicting narratives here one in that we've seen a lot of these rookies um you know even last year really pop uh whereas it used to be these guys took a long time to develop on the other hand even when these rookies pop like guys like claypool and higgins it took five six weeks for them to really kind of find their stride so when you see like all of these values based on a points per dollar thing when we're looking at jamar chase devonta smith rondell moore elijah moore here do you see opportunity or do you see a lot more nest, maybe downside knowing that, Hey, this is their first NFL game and they might not be ready to get 10 plus targets and ball out. Yeah, I do. It's a tough situation. I do like in the back of my mind, wonder if we are kind of overly applying the success that like T Higgins and Chase Claypool had, like, I know it certainly had a big impact on how I drafted my season long teams this year. You know, the success of those guys individually, where, you know, if one of those guys didn't pop as much, would I have been as aggressive on some of the rookies that I am? And to your point, it took time, but they are also in spots where like chase how early he was drafted and the type of offense they're going to run. It feels like he's got to be used right away. 
Devonta Smith has, you know, very little competition for targets in Philly. So Rondell Moore is one that I worry about a little bit more where it's, I could see him being worked in a little bit more slowly because they do have bodies there to play, but at the same time, feels like he's going to step into his own unique role that the other bodies might not fill, even though technically there are names on that depth chart and AJ Green, Christian Kirk that you would think he would be playing behind. So I guess it's a little bit of both, which is maybe a cop out to your question, but, and this is where we sometimes just do the opposite of the market, you know, like, okay, they're overconfident Devonta Smith. I'm going to fade him. You know, they're underconfident Rondell Moore. I'm going to play him. I don't know which of these rookie wide receivers is going to take time, but you just give me, you know, if Jamar Chase is going to be, have lower field exposure than, uh, than Devonta Smith at the same price. Like give me, give me Jamar Chase easily. But so we'll kind of see where once we actually get some projected ownership, how it plays out. Yeah. And I think that's a good point too. And and we say this about everything, but you got to handle it on a case by case basis. Like you said, Devonta Smith and you know, he, he was drafted to be their, their alpha wide receiver. Like that's where the draft capital indicates, you know, they're, they're doubling down a year after drafting Rager. Like you could easily see him waltzing into eight or nine targets. I think when I do look at guys who could potentially be traps and you mentioned Rondell Moore, who we both love, a lot of us love him, but him and like Terrace Marshall, these are guys who are still going to be ancillary pieces on this offense. Do we think they could grow into really big roles? Of course, but we're still talking, you know, Terrace Marshall looked incredible in the preseason, but he's at best, you know, fourth, you know, after Christian McCaffrey, DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson here on the target. So he might be someone that people get out in front of their skis on, on the flip side, I've been really intrigued by Jalen Waddle because Will Fuller's not playing. And I think that gives him a pretty clear runway to a decent market share. And there's lots of, you know, sentiment to that, you know, Devonte Parker might just not be what he's been. So if Jalen Waddle, even as a rookie though, is walking into a pretty big target share right here out of the gate, that that's intriguing to me, even if he wasn't necessarily quite the prospect of some of these other guys. So I don't know. I think that's, what's really interesting to me is trying to guess what the market's going to think. Because like you said, ultimately I don't have really strong convictions on any of these. It's more, I want to be on the ones that the, the field doesn't have a conviction on either. And then the other way to take this is I mentioned the variability and, and, playing quarterbacks at different price points, wide receiver. I mean, people are going to be playing cheap wide receivers this week. I mean, quite a bit with having expensive running backs that you can pay up for. So we're kind of going through, you know, which of these cheap wide receivers do we play? Stefan Diggs, Tyree Gill, Devontae Adams, Calvin Ridley. We might not have a better week to play these guys in a tournament. If you're willing to do so, if you can make it work. And it's not like they're in bad spots by any means. If any, they're actually like all in in pretty good spots. I mean, the Bills have a tough matchup against Pittsburgh, but they're going to throw the ball the entire game in that matchup. And then big total in the the Casey-Cleveland game. And really the matchup just doesn't matter that much for these guys because of their target shares and their talent and the offenses that they run in. And I don't think, yeah, you're running some base optimal lineups right now. I'm assuming it's going to be all cheap, cheap wide receivers. Yep. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I've been looking at this. Um, you know, you see the, the RTS projections for the optimal spitting out, um, a lot of Christian McCaffrey, a lot of Alvin Kamara, Joe Mixon. The surprising things is the optimizer using the kind of the cheap wide receivers to get up to 
a Patrick Mahomes here as well. But I think that the theme is definitely standing out and that is people going cheap at wide receiver with all of these values. So when you look at like a set of optimal lineups like this, we talk about flipping the build, right? I mean, it's going down to your Raheem Moster or whoever, your Damian Harris at running back and getting up to those digs in Hill and Adams because this, to me, uh, is pointing to an obvious flip-the-build spot. Yeah, and it's going. It's easier said than done when you're clicking a lineup and you're not playing you know, 9,500 Christian McCaffrey, right? right. So it, it's easier said than done, but... It, it's about as simple as it gets as far as flipping the build this week. I don't think a lot of things might change as far as who the individual plays are most popular, but yeah. I don't think that's going to change. I think if you're willing to, and this is where too, if you start a roster with like what you think is blindly a really good leverage point, it forces you to be uncomfortable and make good decisions. And that's where you start a roster with Devonte Adams. You put him mm. in, and you make it work as good as you can. And that's why I like to build rosters sometimes starting with what's the best leverage point. Cause if I'm building it more holistically, like at one time, I'm probably going to get to a point where I'm like, Oh boy, I can't play Devonte Adams. I got to get Christian McCaffrey in there. It's a little bit easier for me to say, okay, Devonte Adams is the best leverage. I have to make this work. Let's let's see what happens and then see where I end up. Yeah, I just did. Uh, I just locked him into the lineups here and just ran it just to see uh, how it's kind of flipping things uh, from there. And basically, uh, it's still it's still having jam. It basically sacrificed on flex. It seemed like instead of getting in the three high priced running backs, now you're going down to adding in another Marcus Callaway as kind of your fourth wide receiver, but still finding ways. You know, you look at some of these lineups, it's hilarious. I mean, people are going to be able to play Mahomes, Mixon, McCaffrey, and Devontae Adams if you're willing to go cheap at those other spots. And I do think, again, also, whether you're flipping the build or not, studs and duds is probably going to be extremely popular this week. Yeah, and you probably should have some combination of studs and duds. Like, I don't know if I'd flip the build and build a completely balanced lineup just because... On a different week, if it was studs and duds, like week six, I might feel differently because the duds we're using might lack legitimate ceiling. The duds we're using this week, you have legitimate ceilings. You know, Marquez right. Callaway is going in single digit rounds in fantasy now. You know, um, Pittman is a popular breakout guy. You know, Marvin Jones, say what you will about him as a season long play, but as a week one play, like this is someone that should be 5k, you know, like, yeah, that's what he was all year last. There's no reason for him to be where he is. So it, it is, I'm still probably going to build studs and duds in my flip the build. I'm just probably going to change who those studs are. And then maybe I'll have a little more balance. Like you see this first optimal lineup, you've got a mid-tier Mike Davis, a mid-tier Joe Mixon. I'll mix in some mid-tier guys, but it's not going to be like 6k guys across the board. That's, that's probably a losing strategy this week. Yeah, and you're completely right about these. You know, when we run this optimizer week 10, you're going to be seeing the Chad BBs and Braxton Barrioses <laughs> of the world as your as your mid-price guys. So enjoy the the Pittman and Visca and uh, Marvin Jones being the uh, the cheap guys now while we have it because uh, that's going to evaporate as the season uh, rolls on. Let's see here. So um, as far as, you know, other things to take advantage of, what, what do you – you know, I know Adam 
he does a lot of his ownership uh, by feel. What kind of things are you looking for this week as far as to really see where the field is is concentrated? Is this just something where we're just kind of keeping our fingers on the pulse, the water cooler, who people are talking about on Twitter and, and uh, helping us get there? Or, or is there more of a math-based way to help us crack this? Yeah, for large field tournaments, uh, we've changed kind of how we're doing our ownership projections at ETR where we have like kind of an algorithmic way to, to capture the market sentiment and give a really good base. And then Adam swoops in with having the knowledge that he's done this for years and years and that experience and tailors it. So a lot of what we're doing is, you know, a really good combination of you know, qu- you know quantitative and qualitative and, and the ownership projections are going to be the same way this year. So I think that's going to help, but that's more for large field tournaments. When you get into the small field tournaments, you really do need to have your finger on the pulse. I think one of the best ways to know what you're going to face in these tournaments is to really have a good sense of what the what's the cash game lineup. What's the lineup that everyone is going to be mad Monday? All the uh, mouth breathers are going to be mad and say that everyone shared in this same duped lineup when really it was just the obvious cash lineup. What's that? Because a lot of people are going to play that in small field tournaments or some iteration of that with just one to two differences. For sure. And, um, you know, one other dynamic that I kind of want to hear you flesh out and we use the Devonte Adams example, does Devonte Adams say he is the guy you're trying to flip the build. He's not going to be owned at the same clip uh, as maybe some of these running backs. He plays in the 425 PM game. Now, if, if he's one of the guys you're taking a big stand on and using a lot of your salary cap, I'm guessing you would probably prefer that he was in the 1 p.m. so you had that information early. Is that a dynamic you'll consider? If you think, say, Diggs, Hill, and Adams are all kind of similar in that regard, would you maybe lean towards Diggs as your guy, knowing you would get that information earlier? I don't know for this week specifically because I'm tr- I haven't looked at the start times of the games yet, and I'm looking, and I think a good chunk of the chalk's already going to be there early. So it might be a situation where like, I don't know how many options you're going to have late to pivot. Like the late the late games look like they're not going to be that chalky to me, with the exception of Callaway, I guess. So yeah. I guess it might be helpful to know on Callaway. Like ideally, I'd have more of like a two v two thing where. I wouldn't have to just pivot off Callaway to another cheap receiver. Um, so you get Callaway and Waddle late. I don't know. So yeah, some, I, I generally think more information earlier is better to answer yeah. your question generally or important information earlier right. is better. And to know that I have that edge on the field. Um, but it is, it does seem to be at first glance a little bit tricky to like actually apply that this week with McCaffrey going early with Dalvin cook going or, Oh, Oh, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. Um, Kamara is going to be super chalky late. So God, yeah. In, in, in some ways, if you have Adams in the flex, you can kind of choose Adams or, or Kamara or Kamara. Yeah. Is, is an interesting, and that could be like a huge disparity in points. Like that could be a 20 point either in either direction difference in outcome. Yep. And uh, that's uh, obviously something we want to keep in mind with these lineups too. Having that um, that flexibility, using using the flex there to be able to make those pivots, um, knowing you can let a lineup ride versus needing to get more contrarian. Uh, looking at that Green Bay New Orleans game, we mentioned Callaway earlier. We mentioned uh, Devonte Adams. It made me think back to one thing that I don't know 
if it's um, I was using it too much as a crutch or if it is optimal. But a lot of my hand building last year would take the form of, you know, figure out what kind of decision point or leverage point I wanted to do. But then from there, getting my double stack with a bring back, we talked a lot last year about the running back wide receiver correlation, the running back tight end, the mini correlations within other games, you know, a Callaway in a Devonte Adams. I'm curious now with an off season kind of thinking through that. I know you guys have gone through a lot of the data over on ETR as well. Should we be prioritizing these mini correlations? Is it just a bonus? Am I using it too much as a crutch if I'm always trying to get one of those secondary correlations in there? It's, you know, Ben Gretsch, our friend who has his Substack, bengretsch.substack.com, had a really good article uh, in his newsletter recently. He talked about tacit knowledge where you kind of go through and if you're talking to someone and they give you a list of like 20 caveats, it, it doesn't mean that they're hedging. It actually just means that they like, have this good experience and this knowledge and they kind of understand the nuances of all the situations. And that's kind of how I feel like, you know, certain, when you ask me that question, it's tough to give one answer that's applicable across the board. I guess in general, if you're not sacrificing much in terms of projection or ceiling, you should correlate that every time. These players on opposing sides of the game, they have a positive correlation. That's not something you're making up to make yourself feel better about making the plays. That's something that exists and it's very real and factual. When you start to stretch and you start to sacrifice projected points to do it, you know that's when you you have to think about it a little bit more thoroughly. I do think something that's interesting in that game is the idea of a game stack without the quarterback, you know, is something that people can do and something that we did last year where you couldn't play some of these expensive game stacks with the quarterback because the quarterbacks were also expensive. So this is a good example of where you could play Adams, Kamara, Callaway. That I don't, I don't know if Kamara and Callaway gets too chalky, but you could do that without a quarterback. You know, we don't have Russian quarterbacks on either side. And we think we're going to get some pretty concentrated distribution of fantasy points on the players in this game on both sides. So you can stack without the quarterback. I think that is something that works. And again, if we're in small field, we're trying to reduce the amount of things we have to get right. So then you have a stack with the quarterback that you do play. And all of a sudden you've got kind of like two stacks and you're just kind of hoping these two things go right. And if those two things go right, you're not pretty happy. Yeah. And I think that's a good point too, because, uh, you know, everyone, uh, I'm still in obviously best ball mode here, but everyone gets upset when they, you know, get their CD lamb and Michael Gallup and that someone takes Dak from them, but it's not the end of the world because you're still making a macro correlation bet on this offense being very good. Or in the same way that you could roll out two of those receivers, like you said, without the quarterback, you're still identifying a game in a, a macro environment that you think is going to be beneficial. Even if you're not getting the micro correlation of every time a QB throws to a wide receiver, they're both getting those points. So obviously we want to prioritize those, but in those secondary correlations, you can only start one quarterback. And so just, again, eliminating the things we have to get right and identifying a few of these game environments we like, I think is, is something I want to continue to prioritize. And it does help eliminate decisions. You know, it's, I'm not having to hit a nine leg parlay. I'm, I'm honing in on a few different things and it makes lineup building a lot easier. You know, when we have infinite amount of possibilities, it feels overwhelming to, to hit that parlay. Yeah. I mean, it's just impossible to be perfect across the board. So the mini correlations, the game stacks, like anything you can add in, and we see it all the time in games 
when it goes right, we really see it. I think sometimes it's frustrating when you do a mini correlation and it goes wrong. Like I had one last year where I hit Debo Samuel at like 1% owned coming back from injury, huge game against the Rams. And then Cooper Cup, I brought it back with, did nothing. And you're just like, why did I force that mini correlation? And, you know, a lot of this stuff's like 55, 45 in your favor. So it's not going to be obvious that works out every time. But when you hit the ceiling outcome, which is the most impactful, you know, what do you win when you win? You see like these games that just get sped up, right? They, the game gets sped up, the number of plays on each team, you know, or, or just like how condensed the offenses are, or one offense has to throw to catch up. And you, when you see that correlation really play out and it's like, wow, you know, this was a lot easier than trying to handpick exactly who was going to hit their ceiling outcome each week it was just kind of, even though I didn't stack this whole game, like just the environment broke in a way where like both these guys were going to hit. And, and there's, that happens enough of the time to make the correlations worth it. Yep, for sure. And I, and I think too, like you said, you mentioned the tacit stuff and understanding the differences because I, I think you can be, um, intuitive when how you think about that you know if you are saying okay i'm playing christian mccaffrey i'm eating that chalk i'm expecting christian mccaffrey to put up 35 40 points at this price tag well maybe i want a jets bring back because if mccaffrey is putting up that many points it's going to force the jets to score so I, I think just thinking intuitively about those correlations really helps crystallize why they make sense. Sure. Could you hit on Zach Pascal as, as the random wide receiver in the other game, because Seattle's leading, of course you could, but it's far more likely if you're already making a bet that McCaffrey's going to go nuclear, that you can kind of hone in on that game to get your, you know, cheap wide receiver or whatever. Yeah. And I think too, when, yeah, when doing these game stacks, like understanding the, the salaries used is really important. You know, when, there were times last year it was hard to stack Russ with Metcalf and Lockett because yeah. there's just too much for what they needed to do is the amount of points to salary just wasn't there. But then you've got a Kamara Callaway situation. It's like, oh, well, the, you know, the salary is there. So I'm more likely to expand the quantity of people in my stack as the pricing is more favorable, which kind of just reduces the threshold of like, ceiling I need each player to hit and because there's only so many even if the game goes the way you want it to there's only so many fantasy points there uh, which is why then the salary matters for them to really pay off that price tag yeah one uh final thing I wanted to ask you about as we wrap up here would be some maybe not so obvious correlations. I mean, the one that came to mind last year that was really interesting to me is how Tannehill, uh, or sorry, Derrick Henry was often positively correlated with AJ Brown and Tannehill that when that offense rolled, all of them rolled, which is, you know, it's not an intuitive thing. Cause you always assume anytime Derrick Henry is scoring a touchdown, AJ Brown and Tannehill aren't scoring points. And that would be something we'd want to shy away from. Are there any kind of weird correlations or stuff that you're you're thinking about or making sure not to completely ignore um i guess this maybe goes back to the playing a game without playing a stack without the quarterback but like i think like cincinnati for example i think if they hit they're just gonna throw a ton so i'm not really worried about boyd stealing target share from T Higgins or, or like I would use, I could use two of those three guys without Burrow, just in the hopes that you can get there so much on quantity. And like you think through the way guys can hit their ceiling, you know, one guy can go 
eight Boyd can go eight for a hundred in that slot role, right? And then yeah. we maybe get five, eighty, and one out of T. Higgins. So that I guess that one's not super weird, but like that's an example of just kind of thinking through like the way the players earn their points and the way the offenses can potentially provide those opportunities. Like, does it make sense that it can happen at the same time? And again, we're probably, if we're playing smaller field, we're not thinking, you know, 99th percentile outcomes. We're thinking more like, how do these guys hit like their 80th to 90th percentile outcomes in the same game? So um, that's one that comes to my mind. I know there's others, but I'm struggling to think of it off the top of my head. Um, yeah, no. And that makes sense. Like in, you could definitely see scenarios where say you play Boyd and chase without burrow, and then you pay up an extra $700 to play Jalen hurts. And then you're single stacking Jalen hurts because you know, he could legitimately rush for a hundred yards in this game and access a ceiling that burrow couldn't, even if Boyd and chase pay off. Yeah. And really like just any offense that's condensed, like those guys are all going to benefit if the game gets sped up, if they throw a lot, if the team scores a lot, any offense that's condensed, you know, maybe worry a little bit less about the positions that the players play and just know these opportunities are going to three players and three players only. So if the total pie of opportunities increases, it's still only going to those three guys. Like they're all benefiting from the same game environment. Whereas there might be some other options where, there's only so many TDs to go around and, you know, this guy's going to make his way on these guys both make their ways on efficiency and TDs. Like you might not want to play those guys together as frequently, or, you know, if an offense is more spread out, we might hit that increased game environment. And one guy might be left out on the cold just because his target share, you know, will completely pivot off somebody else's. So really, you know, honing in on these condensed offenses when you're playing multiple players from the same team. Awesome. Well, Excellent stuff. I, uh, I, I'm very excited to go and build some lineups. Now we're finally transitioning to DFS here. Uh, absolutely can't wait. Uh, Mike, of course, over at ETR, the man behind all of the great projections over there. Also, uh, behind one of my favorite shows to watch each week, establish the million with Dink Meyer. I feel like they have, uh, always such a good grasp on how to handle a slate and kind of those big hinge points that we want to be focusing on Mike, other than our tilt space show that is going to be Sunday nights over on the establish the run YouTube channel, anything else you'd, you'd like to plug here? Yeah. Uh, in addition to the establish a million show with dink on Saturday mornings, do wake and rate oh, with yeah. Andrew Wiggins on Sunday mornings, which is uh, a good show to kind of get, you know, last minute news, you know, where's the market going, uh, so that's a good last minute show to watch. And Dink and I are also going to do a second show this year on Monday evenings, kind of reviewing the past week and, and what we thought, you know, what are, what takeaways can we take from how the field was playing and what worked, what didn't work uh, a little bit more macro strategy. And I think, I think that's good because it's always a good, sometimes it's hard to evaluate what happened the past week because it's quick turnaround. You're moving over to the next week. So we're going to try and do that on Monday evenings before we flip to the next week. Awesome. And um, just so everyone knows here on a little bit of a weird schedule this week, just because I am traveling. Uh, but like I mentioned earlier here, I will be settling into uh, a regular schedule here. We'll have the Friday GPP strategy show. We'll have the Monday morning lineup reviews. We'll have showdown crams on Monday and Thursday nights. And then uh, a Sunday morning before lock show. Uh, you guys can join me around 10, 15 or 10 30. I'll give you kind of my final thoughts 
as well on how I'm feeling about my lineups. And uh, of course, shout out to Run the Sims, our presenting sponsor here. You can get 10% off on any of their packages. The, the full preseason bundle or season bundle gets you access to the optimizer, all of the sports betting tools, and a bankroll tracker. If you guys have questions about that, feel free to hit me up. And also, it gets you access to the private Discord channel within the Deposit Kingdom Discord. There's two ways to get in there. You can become a YouTube member in the Hand Builders and Opto Bros level, or if you're a Run the Sim subscriber, I'll give you free access as well. So that's it for me for the plugs. I will be back on Sunday morning to do a final review of how we're feeling. Thank you to Michael Leone for joining me today. Uh, be sure to check us out on Tilt Space on Sunday evening. We're back, baby. We are back. We will talk to you guys soon.